energy. The guy told me I was no spring chicken anymore, and that's why my ankle was still hurting. I'm 33, not 133. The passion. The Red Sox handling of Xander Bogarts is a complete organizational failure. The opinions on all your favorite team. No, not this year, but it's next year where Bill Belichick ends up on the hot seat. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show back at it here on a Wednesday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We're up until 645 tonight, and then it's high school basketball. Brent Curtis on the call. People's Academy at Randolph. Again, that is Girls High School Hoops here on the Friendly Pioneer. Lots to get to in those 75 minutes. We'll talk about the Patriots' offensive coordinator situation. We'll talk about Bill O'Brien's candidacy, specifically with Mike Rodak, who covers Alabama football. He's also covered the Patriots previously. Red Sox make a move. We'll talk about that. And uh, on the podcast channel, we've got interviews up with UVM women's hockey coach Jim Plumer. Also with Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio, you'll hear a little bit from Freddie over the course of the next 75 minutes. You can get in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Ted Johnson is a former Patriots linebacker turned broadcaster, and he's got several what I think are good opinions about the Patriots. This is not one of them. Ted Johnson has an idea on how the Patriots should be handling their hiring of an offensive coordinator, and I disagree with him. But first, you have to identify the system. I know a lot of people want to call it a hybrid and say it's the old Tom Brady system, it's the new Shanahan. I just, I think you are asking for trouble. It's, to me, it's one or the other. It's not a little bit of both. If you're going to do the Shanahan system, you got to do it, baby. And you can't do anything else. If you're going to do the old the Brady, then just do that. Don't do the, the new stuff. And so that's what you got to figure out first. And then whatever system you have, then you bring in the coach that's expertise best fits that system. So Ted Johnson says the Patriots should pick a system they want to run. Bill Belichick should pick a system that he wants to run and then pick offensive coordinator candidates that fit that system. I got to say, I'm going the other way on this. 802-585-3026. I don't want the Patriots to limit themselves. And I especially don't want them to limit themselves at the beginning of the process. If you limit yourself at the beginning, you're missing out on the opportunity to meet good candidates, to hear good ideas. And I don't think the Patriots can afford to not hear good ideas from good candidates. I think they need to hear outside perspectives, outside and fresh ideas. I think they need that. And if that leads to them interviewing nine candidates instead of three, then so be it. I think the more information that Bill Belichick can get, the better. Because if it goes Ted Johnson's way, guess what? Bill just sits up in a room and decides, okay, I want to do this. And now we'll go out and hire based on that. Well, guess what? That's kind of what the Patriots did this year. Bill said, I want to change the playbook. Josh is gone. I want to change the playbook. I'm going to bring in Matt, Patricia, Joe Judge, guys who I think can implement what I want. I want somebody to come in with a new idea, with their scheme, and where they can run with it, where Belichick doesn't really have to be involved because this person is the expert. That's what I want. Now, Belichick's a human being. He's allowed to have a preference of what he likes. I'm sure he will skew himself to a group of candidates, but he can't just be closed off. Bill Belichick needs to, I'm imploring him to hear everything. I want want the Patriots to interview a guy who believes in ground and pound. I want the Patriots to interview a guy who believes in the air raid system. I want them to bring in a guy from the Shanahan system, from the McVay system, from the uh, Matt LaFleur system. 
from the Pete Carroll system. I want them to interview people from a lot of successful systems. Bring in a guy who believes in the West Coast offense. Believe in a guy who brings in, who believes in playing from under center. Believe bring in a guy who believes in playing from the shotgun. I want all of these options on the table. I don't want Bill to come out at the beginning and say, uh-uh, I want one type of system and find me the two or three candidates that do that. Let's just roll with it. I want to hear from eight to ten candidates. I want to hear about multiple different systems because if you don't, you are missing out on the opportunity to learn, to hear good ideas, to meet new people, and ultimately to make yourselves grow. What I want What I think needs to happen is Bill Belichick needs to evolve. And in order for you to evolve, you need to listen to people that have done things differently than you. If Bill just picks the system, then Bill Belichick's not evolving. He's saying, all right, I just, I want to do exactly what we did last year. We just got to find a guy to do it better. That I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for new. I'm looking for fresh. I'm looking for innovative. That's what I want. That's what this team needs. Gary says, uh, we're not all Pats fans. Talk about the offseason during the offseason. Talk about the remaining contenders now. We could also talk about baseball. Well, Gary, thank you for your permission. We're going to talk about baseball in uh, the 6 o'clock hour. And we talked to Buster Oldie tomorrow. And we talked to Tom Karen yesterday. So we, you know, I could talk about baseball every day, all day, frankly. But we'll talk about the Red Sox in the 6 o'clock hour. Gary, I got news for you, man. The Patriots are the team we cover. That's the team on our station. That's the region that we live in. Okay? that That's the facts. All right? That's the facts. You go to Boston, guess what? They're talking about the Patriots. You go to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, they're talking about the Patriots. You go to Bangor, Maine, they're talking about the Patriots. Everybody in New England's talking about the Patriots, and the Patriots have a lot of things to talk about. The Patriots have a lot of content. That's why we're talking about them. When we get to the end of the week, we'll do our previews. We'll do our games, uh, our, our keys to games. Well, I'll make predictions, just like I did last week. But I don't know that most of our audience is interested in how Travis Kelsey matches up with Bengals safety Jesse Bates. Or in this case, it would be Dawson Knox against Jesse Bates. Or Stephon Diggs on Eli Apple. I don't know that people are interested in that. Our audience is interested in the Patriots. So that's where we're going, at least here, off the start of the show. Elsewhere on the Patriots' offensive coordinator search, here's what needs to happen as well. Belichick needs to listen to new ideas. But during these interviews, it is a must that all of these candidates answer, how are you going to best utilize Mac Jones? The whole offseason for the Patriots is about making life easier for Mac and making life better. Whoever is interviewed has to be able to answer that question. Because if I'm Bill Belichick, I want and need to hear your plan. When you come visit me, I need I need a bullet point, a bulletproof bulleted plan on how Mac is successful under your system. And look, you we're going to run it 30 times, and that makes it easier for Mac. We're going to get Mac moving out of the pocket. We're going to run play action. We're going to use the zone read. We're going to focus on the short game. We're going to throw it deep. Whatever your answer is, you better have an answer. Because the biggest question plaguing the Patriots in this offseason is how do we make life easier for Mac, and everything needs to be built around that. I'll trust the football people to dissect the answers that they get, but everybody who comes in, has to have an answer, has to have an answer. And I talked to Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio earlier today, and he agrees that, well, everybody has to be able to answer that question. So it's a very interesting question. My honest answer is, you're Bill Belichick. What are you going to do to make sure that you got a dude calling plays that can be very multiple, very varied, very creative, but more importantly, put points on the board, especially in that division where you got Josh Allen and Buffalo. If the Jets can find a quarterback, we know what kind of offensive pieces they have. And a Miami Dolphins team that's Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle and a Tua Tagovailoa can stay healthy. We've seen what that offense has been able to do. Freddie's right, right? I think you listen to everyone, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to find somebody who's able to help Mac. More texts on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Uh, oh, and these people do want to hear about the Patriots. Walt in Richmond, 
Brady, would you let Mac Jones sit in on the offensive coordinator interviews and let him hear what these coaches have to say and let him give input? It's a good question for me. That answer is no. I don't believe that Mac Jones deserves a say in what's happening with the coaching staff. And the reason why is because Mac Jones, to me, doesn't have the stability in the organization that you need to be able to give input, right? I believe franchise quarterbacks deserve a say in things, in a lot of things, right? Not everything, but in a lot of things. It's why Aaron Rodgers wanted to say. It's why Russell Wilson wanted to say. They're long-term answers, or at least they were, and they were under long-term contracts. I'd give Josh Allen a say in Buffalo. I'd give Joe Burrow a say. I would give Patrick Mahomes a say. Justin Herbert, who's going to get a big deal in, in Los Angeles, I'd give him a say. These guys deserve some power, and they deserve to be empowered. They are decades-long answers for their teams. I don't know that Mac Jones is that. Right, I can't let Mac Jones make decisions or I can't give Mac a ton of input because I don't know if Mac's going to be here. For all I know, Mac gets dealt this offseason. For all I know, Mac gets dealt next offseason. For all I know, Mac gets benched this season. I can't involve him in the decision-making because I don't know that he's the long-term answer here. And if you're not the long-term answer, I am not making decisions based upon you. It is that simple. It is that simple. Uh, now, Freddie Coleman, I asked, I actually asked him this question earlier. Now, he disagrees with me. He, think Mac, he thinks that Mac does deserve some say. So he should have a little bit of input, a little bit of some sort of say to think, yeah, this is what I'm thinking we can do. And then you put all that together and see what kind of mix of that stew that you can come together, makes you make sure you find the right guy that's going to be there for Mac Jones. So I'm not saying he has to walk in there and have a PowerPoint presentation, everything like that. But I think you need to have him have a little bit of input. Yeah, I don't think so. Because look, Mac is in a nebulous position right now. Right? He is going into year three. I don't know that he's the answer yet. So therefore, I can't go make a decisions based upon him. It's it's really that simple. Think about your personal life, right? You've got a boyfriend, you've got a girlfriend that you like, you like a lot. You don't know if they're the one yet. Do you involve them in every single decision of your life, especially the long-term ones? Probably not because you're just not sure if they're there long-term. right? I don't know that Mac Jones is the quarterback that I'm going to be married to for a decade. Josh Allen is that guy. Patrick Mahomes is that guy. Russell Wilson was that guy. They deserve some power. They deserve some say. I get why they want it. Mac Jones, to me, doesn't deserve it because... The minute I go make a decision based on what Mac wants is the minute that Mac is gone. I I just, I'm not ready to do that. Now, Sharif in Williamstown says, Brady, if you don't think Mac is the long-term answer and you're worried about his overall stability with the team, why do candidates have to answer the question, how do you get the best out of Mac? Well, because Mac is who I have right now, Sharif. And that's who I profile to have for the next couple of years. You have to be able to maximize him. Okay, If this offensive coordinator can maximize Mac, maybe he becomes that decade-long answer and he becomes a guy that I give power to. That is the goal. right? The goal is that we put an infrastructure around Mac that's good enough, that he can flourish, that now I want to keep him around long-term. That's the goal. I just don't know. We're just not there right now. So... The offensive coordinator who comes in for a visit, for an interview, has to be able to get the most out of Mac to try to make that a possibility for me. That's it. But I'm not giving Mac the power. Not right now. To, to me, he's on too too slippery a footing as far as I'm concerned. Um, and by the way, I also think that whoever you hire, if, I, if they can have a plan for Mac, then I'd like to think they could adjust and have a plan for at least a similar type of quarterback as Mac. So if they can make, if they can answer how do you get Mac good, I think they could also do it for Zappy or whoever else might be in the uh, Patriots system in the next couple of years. So whoever the Patriots might draft or whatever. But, you know, Mac right now is not the answer long-term to me and therefore doesn't deserve the ability to make, you know, franchise-altering decisions. That's just how I see it. It is the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. 
the most prominent name right now being bandied about for the Patriots offensive coordinator is Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien is the former head coach of the Texans, former head coach at Penn State. He used to work with the Patriots. He was the offensive coordinator for the Patriots once before with Tom Brady. He's currently the offensive coordinator at Alabama. You know, the Crimson Tide, always a national championship favorite. So he's down in Tuscaloosa right now and has been for the last two years. His name has surfaced here loudly as a candidate for the Patriots, and the rumor is out that Robert Kraft wants Bill O'Brien. Well, let's go out to the phone line now and learn a little bit more about Bill O'Brien and his candidacy and the job he's done at Alabama from a guy who covers Alabama football. Joining us now on the phone line is Mike Rodak, covers Alabama for AL.com. Mike, thanks for being with us, man. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you being with us. The reason we're bringing you on is that the reports are out that the Patriots want Bill O'Brien as their next offensive coordinator. Having covered Alabama now for the last few years and having covered Bill O'Brien in his tenure at Alabama, what is uh, your read on the job he's done with the Crimson Tide? It's a very difficult job to be a coordinator on either side of the ball at Alabama because if anything goes wrong on the field, Trust me, fans are not going to blame Nick Saban. He's the one who has seven championship rings on his hand. Uh, fans believe that everything that Nick Saban says or does is gold, and so it's never going to be his fault. And so if something goes wrong, and there has been a few things that have gone wrong for Alabama. They've lost four games the last two seasons, which is a lot for them. They haven't won a national title the past two seasons, which is that's the standard for them every single year. And so fans have come after the coordinators on both sides, and a very difficult job in that sense because Alabama still has a top 10 offense. Uh, they, I mean, they score almost 45, 46 points a game, and fans are still mad. And I can tell you that the vast majority of fans have wanted to push Bill O'Brien out the door at Alabama since, I'd say, at least last offseason, and that's only intensified this season. And there's a lot of fans in Alabama waiting on the edge of their seat for any news that says Bill O'Brien is leaving mm-hmm. because I think they would celebrate it. Um, and that's just the culture of what Alabama football is. There is an incredibly high bar here. Uh, they have watched a lot of success over the last 15 years, and the offense the past two years under O'Brien has slipped just a little bit. And they've gone from what they were the 2020 season when they went undefeated. Steve Sarkeesian was their offensive coordinator. They had a Heisman Trophy winner at wide receiver and Devontae Smith. They had all sorts of All-Americans. They were scoring 50 points a game. They're blowing, every, blowing out everybody, and now it's not like that. And it's just a little bit – they're still very, very good, but it's a little bit dropped off, and I think that's where a lot of fans are getting upset. Obviously, O'Brien and Mac Jones, the Patriots quarterback, worked together at Alabama. What do you know about their specific relationship? Because that seems to be a selling point to a lot of people up here. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I think it's a little bit of a misconception there because Bill O'Brien was actually never Mac Jones' offensive coordinator. Yeah. So Mac's last year was 2020, um, which was Steve Sarkeesian's last year's offensive coordinator. Then Mac was still around the facility after that season ended up until the draft when the Patriots took him at the end of April. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian had left in January to go to Texas to become their head coach, mm-hmm. and that's when Alabama moved and they hired Bill O'Brien. So Brian comes in in January. Mac's still there for three months until he goes to the draft. And the way that Alabama does it, the way that Nick Saban does it, it's his playbook. You know, no matter who the offensive coordinator is, they're running Nick Saban's playbook. They're not bringing their own. So Brian had to learn the Alabama system when he came to Alabama, and it was Mac Jones who helped teach Bill O'Brien those couple months that they overlapped the Alabama terminology. Um, so that's where really the relationship comes from. But in terms of actually coaching him on the field, that never actually happened at Alabama. What do you know about Bill O'Brien's interest in going back to the NFL, you know, maybe being a coordinator as opposed to a college head coach? As I understand it, there's a there's a family issue with O'Brien, right, that maybe he doesn't want to move that far away from where he was based in Houston. I don't know if that's true or not. What do you know about his interest in maybe leaving Tuscaloosa and getting back to the NFL? Yeah, he's a guy who's who spent time in, in both levels of football. And I know when he was first hired at Alabama, fans kind of saw him as an NFL coach because he had just come from Houston. Um, but he really made the point to us when he was first hired that he spent a lot of time in college. He was an assistant in the ACC for Duke and Maryland and Georgia Tech, 
obviously later became the head coach at Penn State. And really, the majority of his career, he has been a college coach. So I don't know if he's necessarily an NFL guy, but I do think at this point in his career that he's over 50 years old, he's been a head coach, he probably wants to become an NFL head coach again at some point. And yeah, it's probably a little bit easier for an NFL coordinator to do that than if you're coming from the college level. So uh, that's where I think that thinking comes from. He does have a son who has some special needs uh, medically, and they've received a lot of care in Houston at, at one of the major you know hospitals there. And you know, obviously Boston has some world class hospitals as well. Um, so you know, as much I can't speak to him personally on what his his desires are with his son, but I do know. And it's well publicized that his son is, you know, has some medical issues that do require some extra care. Mike Rodak, he covers Alabama football for AL.com. You know, what is your impression of Mac Jones? Because we could do an hour on how people up here feel about Mac. You know, I think people like Mac. I think they see him as limited. I think they see him as, you know, some some days he's viewed as ultra competitive and some days he's viewed as a little bit whiny. How exactly do you view Mac and what was it like covering him? Yeah, I think all those things are fair, and I think I've noticed all those things. And, you know, he was the starter here for one year, uh, plus the end of the season before that after Tua had his hip injury. So it wasn't like it was a very long time covering Mac, but he was here for four years, mostly as a backup. He was a three-star kid who came in. I think he came in with a chip on his shoulder, um, which is not – it's not typically you – know, Alabama doesn't take too many three-star recruits. So he was pretty far down the, the totem pole and worked his way into being a starter, and then from there worked his way to being a starter on a national championship team that went undefeated. And I think he still kind of has that chip because a lot of people kind of wrote off his success for having all the players around him, having Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell, although it was only for half of that season, having Najee Harris, having an offensive line with all sorts of guys, having a good defense. So it was, it was never really – the credit really wasn't flowing to him all the time, and you know, I think he played well that year. I mean, he, he was accurate. I think he sent pressure really well. I think his arm was adequate. It wasn't a Josh Allen arm, but I don't think he has a noodle arm. And I think he is a capable NFL quarterback, and I still do. And I've watched a decent amount of Patriots games, and I've followed all of the, the dialogue around him. I, I do think he has that mentality sometimes where he's going to be demonstrative on the field, and he's going to let people know his emotions. And that's something Nick Saban tried to kind of beat out of him. Um, but you know, it's just part of his personality, I think. And I do think it is a competitive guy who, who wants to win. So take that as you will. And I think the Patriots just kind of have to take Mac for what he is. And I think what we saw his rookie year is probably closer to what he is and what we saw this past season and what so many other things around him were just not where they should have been. You know, you covered the NFL for a number of years, and you spent time covering the Patriots, but you also covered the Bills. And as someone who covered a lot of not very good Bills teams, what do you think this run that the Bills are on means to the people of Buffalo? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a fan base that was beaten down a little bit, you know, not only from the Super Bowl losses, which, you know, at at this point, that was 30 years ago, and there's Anybody under the age of 40 probably doesn't remember those, doesn't really remember the Jim Kelly days or the Scott Norwood mess. I mean, that's kind of the older fans at this point that, that think about those things. But the younger fan base still had to go through that playoff drought with 17 seasons out of the playoffs and, you know, Trent Edwards, a quarterback, and, and Ryan Fitzpatrick and E.J. Manuel and Tyrod Taylor. And that was kind of the, the part of the Bills history that I covered. And fans just sort of felt... So it, it was just like they were passionate about the team. They loved watching the team, but at the same time, they weren't winning, and they were just getting beaten every year by the Patriots, twice a year in some cases. And now it's completely flipped where they're the ones kind of dealing um, the blow to the Patriots every time they play, and I think it's, it's cathartic for them. And, you know, I don't know where this season's going to head. It doesn't seem like they played as good football lately as they were early in the season, but – they do still have a pretty good foundation. I mean, they've spent a lot of resources on Josh Allen. They spent a lot of resources on Stephon Diggs. Both of those guys have hit. And now it's just trying to keep that team together around them and, and keep those two guys together and see what they can do the next few years. What was your experience like covering the Patriots? I imagine you saw a lot of wins, so it was pretty fun in a lot of ways, i got to imagine. Yeah, that was three years, uh, 2010, 2011, 2012. And you kind of... You know, you saw both sides of it. They won a lot of games, but 
that 2010 season, they lost to the Jets in the divisional playoffs, which was a pretty big upset with Rex Ryan coming in. And then 2011, they had a very good run that year and ended up winning the AFC Championship on that Sterling Moore pass breakup against the Ravens. Went to the Super Bowl in Indianapolis that year and had heartbreak again with you know the Giants yeah. um, with Mario Manningham and that catch. And then 2012 was you know, a decent season too. And then it just kind of fell apart at the end. They lost to the Ravens and the AFC championship in pretty convincing fashion. So uh, I covered one Super Bowl. I didn't cover any Super Bowl wins. That was kind of that era of Patriots history where they were good, but they weren't making it all the way. I mean, because people forget, like people talk about the Patriots dynasty, but I mean, they went from 2005, that season, all the way to 2014 without winning a Super Bowl. I mean, that's nine years, ten years, if you, you count you know, the seasons themselves. So that's, that's a long time. Yep. I mean, they were still a dynasty, but it wasn't like they were just winning year in, year out. Hey, the Pats have the number 14 pick in the draft. They're always down to pick an Alabama player, given Belichick and Saban's relationship. Any Alabama uh, offensive linemen or wide receivers that profile to be middle first-round guys that we should be paying attention to as we start to familiarize ourselves with draft prospects? No, no, not this year. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's going to line up um, where the Patriots pick and where an Alabama player will be and where the Patriots' positions and needs are. Because Alabama is going to have two guys go within the first three picks: Bryce Young, their quarterback; Will Anderson, their pass rusher. Both of those guys are, I mean, locked down number two, number three overall picks, maybe number one. Um, from there, there's probably only two other first-round picks from Alabama. One of them is Brian Branch, who's a safety, kind of a Minka Fitzpatrick type. I mean, the Patriots could use them, but I don't think in this in their defense they already have Kyle Duggar in that role. I just yeah. don't see them drafting another guy to play that. And then um, they, it, Jameer Gibbs, a running back, who's kind of like an Alvin Kamara uh, catch out of the backfield type, which, you know, maybe I think it would be early for him at 14. He's probably more of a late first-round pick. But, you know, that, they could use that in their offense. I don't think that's their biggest need. I think they're going to attack the offensive tackle position more than anything else um, and then kind of see from there. I mean, you could say, you know, wide receiver, um, you know, corner. There, there's a few other positions of need I think they could use, but – I don't see the Alabama players in the first round lining up with the Patriots' needs. Well, maybe we'll catch one in the second, third, or fourth round. Then so it's always down to get an Alabama player here in New England. So Mike Rodak, who covers Alabama football for AL.com, he previously covered the Patriots and the Bills, and we appreciate his expertise across the board today. Mike, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you again down the road. Thanks for the time. Sounds good. Thank you. Absolutely. There goes Mike Rodak from AL.com. Again, used to cover the Patriots. And the Buffalo Bills. When he was covering the Bills, that's when I caught up with him the first time and have followed his work ever since. He is great. So uh, he is right to point out, by the way, that the Patriots dynasty, I think, is a little overstated. I don't mean overstated, but I think it should be broken up into two dynasties, right? Like dynasty part one and dynasty part two rather than one continuous 20-year run because you you did have a nine-year decade-long run where you didn't win a Super Bowl. Uh, Lots of good stuff on Bill O'Brien. Um, lots of good stuff on Bill O'Brien. And and I got to tell you, after hearing what Mike has to say, I'm back to not feeling good about the idea of the Pats hiring him. Really. I don't know how you're feeling. We're going to get the CBS News update here in a minute. And then after CBS News comes, you know, after the CBS News update is done, I'll take your text on how you're feeling about the idea of Bill O'Brien being hired here. And don't worry, Gary, who's mad at me talking about the Patriots, we won't talk about the Patriots that much into the 6 o'clock hour. But I want to know how you're feeling about Bill O'Brien. Because after what Mike Rodek has to say, i got to tell you, I'm kind of out. Like, I was out all along. Then I started to kind of talk myself into it. And now I think I'm back to being out again. Mike said a couple of things. That really, really make me nervous about Bill O'Brien coaching the offense for the Patriots. I'll tell you what those things were, and I'll take your input next. After CBS News here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, and the WDEV radio app. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. 
Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Another 40 minutes on the air. Then we've got high school hoops tonight. Girls basketball between People's Academy and Randolph. Brent Curtis already waiting courtside. He'll be on the call there. Tip-off is 7. The pregame show is 6.45. So we just talked to Mike Rodak, the Alabama football reporter for AL.com, and we talked a lot about Bill O'Brien potentially being the offensive coordinator for the Patriots. And I had started to warm up to the idea of Bill O'Brien getting hired, and Mike Rodak pushed me back to where I was originally. I, I, I'm not in love with this idea. I mean, I'm not going to crucify the Patriots if they go this way, but I'm not in love with this idea. I started out not in love with it. Then I tried to talk myself into it, and now Mike has beaten me back to my original position. And here's why. There's three reasons. One, Bill O'Brien never coached Mac Jones. Two, Bill O'Brien was coaching Nick Saban's system at Alabama for the last two years, not his own. And three, the Alabama fans, they are hoping that Bill O'Brien leaves. For those three reasons, I'm out on this, or at least I prefer to be out on this. Those seem like pretty big deals to me. 802-585-3026. These seem like really big red flags. So much has been made regionally about the relationship between Bill O'Brien and Mac Jones and why that comfort would be a good thing for Mac. But Mac literally never played for Bill O'Brien. And that goes, like, underreported. Like, they they passed each other in the halls at Alabama. Mac taught O'Brien the offense as Mac was leaving the door, you know, as Mac was leaving for the draft. But Mac never played for Bill O'Brien. Yeah, I mean, there, there, I think it's a little bit of a misconception there because Bill O'Brien was actually never Mac Jones' offensive coordinator. Yeah. So Mac's last year was 2020, um, which was Steve Sarkeesian's last year's offensive coordinator. Then Mac was still around the facility after that season ended up until the draft when the Patriots took him at the end of April. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian had left in January to go to Texas to become their head coach. Mm-hmm. And that's when Alabama moved and they hired Bill O'Brien. So O'Brien comes in in January. Mac's still there for three months until he goes to the draft. So Mac helped O'Brien learn the Alabama playbook, and that's great. But they never were never around each other in an actual game situation. Mac doesn't know how O'Brien calls an actual game. Mac doesn't know what... O'Brien's actual philosophies are offensively. O'Brien doesn't know exactly how Mac reacts in certain situations. He doesn't know exactly what Mac likes. He doesn't know exactly what Mac does well. He doesn't know what Mac's limitations are. He doesn't have in-game experience with Mac. And that, to me, is a big deal. As far as I'm concerned, Bill O'Brien is no closer to Mac Jones football-wise than any other outside candidate, right? Like, if you brought in the quarterback's coach for the Rams, Zach Robinson, or if you brought in the wide receiver's coach for the Vikings, Keenan McCardell, who's getting who's getting uh, interviewed, those guys don't know Mac Jones. To me, they're on the same level as Bill O'Brien is. Yes, they've had conversations. They've watched film together. Mac has talked to O'Brien before. That's great. But there's never been an in-game football relationship. And I think we're being sold, essentially, that there has been and there's not. The relationship between O'Brien and Mac is supposed to help catapult O'Brien's candidacy. That that relationship has not existed football-wise. It has not existed on field-wise. That, to me, so, so we're crossing that one off the list. That seems like a big-time deal to me. Number two on the list of big deals is that Rodak says O'Brien was coaching Nick Saban's system. That when you come to Alabama, you're working with Saban's system, and that's that. So the last two years, Bill O'Brien has been operating and perfecting his own system. He's not operating and perfecting his own playbook. He's operating somebody else's playbook. We talk about the Patriots needing creativity, needing fresh ideas. And I 
don't know that Bill O'Brien's had to use any of them recently. Like, yeah, he's called his own plays before, but in the last two years, he hasn't he hasn't been doing that. I need the Patriots. I need the Patriots offensive coordinator to not be a Bill Belichick yes man. Yes man. And Bill O'Brien was basically a, a yes man to Nick Saban. He did exactly what Saban wanted. I don't want him to come in here and do exactly what Belichick wants. I want whoever's here to have their own ideas, their own voice, their own system, and something they've been working at and crafting and perfecting. And I don't know that O'Brien is – I don't think O'Brien is that right now. If he's just running Saban's playbook, did I – I don't know that the creativity the Patriots need is really all that present. Now, I spoke to Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio earlier today. He disagrees. He thinks I should have more faith in O'Brien. But we can't say that Bill O'Brien can't call plays successfully at the next level when we saw that he was able to do that with the Houston Texans. Now, if you're Bill Belichick, that is somebody you believe in and you trust, and you're going to give him that kind of leeway. Bill O'Brien has shown that he can do that. He did it the first time the Patriots. We saw what that offense looked like before he let the goal take over Penn State and resurrect that program, then take over the Houston Texans. Now, that's fair, right? That's a good counter by Freddie, but college is different than the pros. And in Houston, Bill O'Brien had Deshaun Watson at his very best. He doesn't have that here, okay? In Houston, Bill O'Brien had Deshaun Watson and had DeAndre Hopkins and had a defense with J.J. Watt on it. We don't have that in Foxborough. And it's been at least two years since Bill O'Brien did his own thing. I would rather go to somebody, again, who at this point has been building up and has been establishing themselves recently. I just feel like O'Brien isn't that guy. Again, I wouldn't crucify the Patriots if they hired O'Brien. I just think there's probably a different candidate. And finally, Rodak says to me, if Bill O'Brien leaves... Alabama fans will be happy. That at least registers with me. That at least raises my antenna. Does it not raise the antenna for you? Now, I get it. SEC fans are different. Their motto is built different. Alabama fans are different and have unrealistic expectations. But guess what? I have expectations also. I want the Patriots to be a Super Bowl team. I liked it when the Patriots were in the AFC Championship game almost every year. I want them in the playoffs every season. That's what I want. And if Alabama fans don't think that Bill O'Brien is getting enough done with elite talent on the offensive line, elite talent at wide receiver, and the possible number one pick in the draft, how can I be convinced that he's going to better this group of Patriots? I can't. He's got Bryce Young. He's got an elite line. It's college football. And Alabama fans want him gone. If he can't work with that group under those situations, why am I confident that he can do it here? I'm not. There's got to be somebody else. Okay? I like the idea of bringing in Zach Robinson, who's the quarterback's coach with the Rams. I would love to see the Patriots interview him. He's from the McVeigh system. I love McVay's system. He's worked with okay, different quarterbacks, right? Quarterbacks that look like Mac. Matthew Stafford has a better arm than Mac, but he's not he's not mobile. He's worked with a limited group of players, right? Now the Rams have elite talent, but all of it got injured. So he's worked with talent that is more comparable to the Patriots. He has worked with Baker Mayfield, another guy athletically who's kind of like Mac, and made Baker look halfway decent. I'd like to see Zach Robinson. Keenan McCardell, who's with, who's the wide receivers coach at Minnesota, former Browns and Jaguars wide receiver. You know, I don't know enough about him as a coach, but I can sit here and say, like, you know, that offense did pretty well getting stuff out of Kirk Cousins. Now, they have Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson, so I get it a little easier on the coaches there, but... I'd be interested in giving him a shot. Bill O'Brien, to me, just if, if his current place that the fans want him out, why am I rushing to bring him in? Uh, Ralph says the offensive play calls have been just that offensive, so I think it would be an improvement, dot, dot, dot. Well, yes, I'm sure anything would be an improvement over what the Patriots had this year. But 
I want to see the Patriots get to the Super Bowl. I don't want to see them just be better than 8-9, and nine, just be a little bit better than Matt Patricia. 802-585-3026, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. I want to end our Patriots conversation here. Watching Rafael Nadal last night, the early this morning, that is the portrait of why I don't want Tom Brady to come back to New England. All right, so we talked yesterday about the Patriots being the third favorite for Brady on, on a gambling site. And I said yesterday that I don't want Brady back in New England. Well, last night with Rafael Nadal, that's the reason why. I know a lot of you were not up late watching tennis, but I was. And, and watching Nadal last night, it was painful. Now, I don't claim to be a diehard tennis fan, but I love major tennis. And I love Rafael Nadal. And last night, he's being run off the court by an unseated American that I'd never heard of. And then in the second set, he hurt his hip. And while he kept playing, he had basically given up and got swept in three sets. That was really hard to watch. To see a player who's that good, who means that much to the sport, who I like that much, struggle that much with a player he shouldn't have struggled with, and then to see him get injured and then get beaten, that's not a sight that I like, and that's not a sight that I want to see, and it's not something I want to happen with Tom Brady. Not here. I want my goats. I want my great ones. I want them to go out on top. I want them to go out on their terms. I don't want them to go out embarrassed. And last night, it was embarrassing for Rafael Nadal. Now, maybe he'll come back from injury, but last night might not have been the end. But it certainly felt like the end is near. And if watching that with an athlete that I love but isn't my favorite athlete in sports, in a sport that I like but isn't my favorite of sports, if it hurts me that much to see Nadal do that, if it pained me that bad to watch it, imagine how it would feel to see Tom Brady come back to Foxborough and have the same thing happen to him, except it wouldn't be one night. Rafael Nadal was hard to watch for two and a half hours on one night. If Tom Brady came back to New England and struggled, it wouldn't be one night. It would be 17 times. I don't want to see it happen. Not in that uniform. Not with that logo. Not with that helmet. Not in that stadium. I don't want to see it. It is one thing to see Tom Brady struggle with another team. That that wouldn't bother me. It would bother me and pain me to see him struggle with the Patriots. That would be painful. If last night, Rafael Nadal, if it that really got me last night, early this morning. I was up till 1.30 watching it. If that got me, imagine how I'd feel if Brady came in and really struggled and played poorly. And got hurt. It would be it would be gutting for the fan base, I think. And and I know it would be gutting for me. Text on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Nick in Montpelier. Brady, I'm confused. Didn't you say a while back that Ken Griffey Jr. was your favorite player? And when he went back to the Mariners, you said you didn't care how he played. You were just happy to see him back with the team. Why is this different? Nick, good memory. Thanks for listening. I did say that. But baseball, to me, is different. Now, it was still sad to see Ken Griffey Jr. struggle, but Ken Griffey Jr. wasn't being beaten up. And the whole game didn't flow through him, so it doesn't hurt as much. If Ken Griffey hits 137, well, he's only got three at-bats a game, and he could sit out here and there, and I don't have to watch him play defense where he's slower. They could stick him at DH. If he hits 145, there's still 80 other guys in the lineup. If he strikes out with the bases loaded, then the line moves on to somebody else. It's different. You can kind of hide a bad player in baseball. It doesn't stick out as much. You cannot hide a bad quarterback. Everything would flow through Tom Brady. He's got the ball at every play. 80 chances to look bad. 80 plays where he can get hit, get hurt. That's different than than Ken Griffey Jr. It, it lands differently in baseball than it does in football. I don't want to see Brady come back. I don't want to see him at risk of looking like Nadal looked last night 
and seeing it happen over and over and over again. All right, just for Gary, we're moving off the Patriots. Our last 20 minutes here are no are Patriot free. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Well, they have an expensive but totally unimpressive receiving core, and they have at absolute best, at most charitable, the ninth best quarterback in their own conference. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race, and I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, who's saying what on the Brady Farkas show? This one I I wanted to get to yesterday, and we just didn't have time to. But uh, Celtics played on Monday, right? Martin Luther King Day. We talked about that game. They beat the Hornets 130-118. to And Jason Tatum in that game got 51 points. Now, the game was decided late in the fourth quarter, and with just, you know, 30 seconds to go or whatever, Tatum was at 48. And he went for a three to try to get to 50. And after the game, Tatum said this. Uh, I was very aware. Uh, and honestly, the thing that was going through my mind uh, when I had 49 against the Heat earlier this season, I took a shot and we got the ball back. But it was like 50 seconds left. And I remember I just I told him I waved him off. Uh, you know, I didn't go get the ball. And uh, Jamal Crawford texted me after the game. He's like, man, if you're ever that close to 50, um, nobody's going to remember, you know, time and score. You know, they just going to record if you're at 50 or not. Because in my mind, I was like, you know, I've scored 50 six or seven times before. Uh, so when Al got that rebound and I was drilling up the court, that's what was going through my mind. You know, Jamal telling me, like, you know, if you're that close to 50, you know, go get it. So uh, I must be getting old. This I, I must be getting a little old manish, a little back in my day, a little get off my lawn guy. I didn't love hearing that. And I don't know if I'm the only one. 802-585-3026. The game is decided. Tatum's at 48, and he says, I am very aware that I was close to 50. And I wanted to go and get 50. To me, I, I didn't I didn't love that. I didn't love that. And I don't know if I'm right or if that's just me being an old man. I need your help. 802-585-3026. Because I look at it like you should be focused on the team. The team won, and that's what mattered. And you got 48, and that was great. But look, you've scored 50 before. You just said you've scored 50 six or seven times. This isn't the first time you've scored 50. This is not a new thing for you. It'd be one thing if it was going for 60 or 70 or 80, but that you're going for 50, a number you've hit a bunch of times already in your career. He had 50 in the playoffs last year, I think. No, he didn't. I think he was in March of last year. But nonetheless, you've scored. You won the game. That's what should matter most. You've scored 50 before. Why does this matter to you that much? But then the other part of me is like, Brady, stop being so old. 50 is 50. 50 is cool. The guys around the league know that 50 is cool. And it's an entertainment-driven business, and the fans would want to see 50. So I'm I'm having this tug of war with myself where I'm like, the fans would want to see it. It's a cool thing. You don't see it every day. But then I'm like, I just don't love it. I just don't love it because the team and the team's success – should be the thing that matters to you most. And I asked Freddie Coleman about it earlier, and he said he doesn't love it either, but he kind of put the blame somewhere else. I think you feel the right way about that, and it's not so much an old man mentality because I'm with you. I'm thinking at a certain point, if the issue is no longer in doubt, do you really need to go for 51 at that standpoint? I'm not going to crush Jason Tatum for doing that. But I think the Boston Celtics head coach Joe Mazzulla could eliminate the whole thing by not having Jason Tatum on the floor yeah. when that game had already been decided. So I think that's something that we have to take into consideration. But if you have a chance to be on the floor, you have a chance to go for 50, I think why the heck not? I'm not going to get too over-exercised about that. I'm not going to crush people who feel some way differently. Yeah, I'm not going to crush Tatum. I am not going to crush him. But it just 
when I heard that, I was kind of, I was kind of cringeworthy to me because all year the Celtics have been talking about team basketball and trying to get back to the finals and team goals. And then here was an individual thing. I just, I just didn't love it. And maybe I'm in the wrong and maybe I'm just getting old and maybe I'm get off my lawn guy now and I'm, and I'm disappointed if I'm becoming that. But I just thought it was all about the team. And at the end of the day, is there a difference between 48 and 51? Not really. Especially when you've scored 50 before. You weren't going for a milestone. It wasn't the first time. Get the win. You got the win. Now move on and get ready to play Golden State on Thursday. That's, that's, that's how I feel. I, I'm not going to crush him, but I didn't love it. It's a Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox make a move today, and I think it was a good move. We'll tell you what they did and how it changes things for the lineup. That's next here on DEV. The Brady Farkas Show now has an interactive text line, so reach out now at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox make what I think is a pretty good move earlier this morning, signing outfielder Adam Duvall to a one-year deal worth $7 million. Now, we talked about this yesterday, and I'm in favor of this. I am in favor of signing anyone with a legitimate resume on the back of their baseball card, and Adam Duvall has it. Now, he could be absolutely boomer bust. Right, he had 38 home runs and, and won a Gold Glove and led the NL in RBIs in, in 2021. Last year he was terrible, so I get it. He could come in and hit 35 homers and bring in 100 and be Hunter Renfro, or he could hit 208, 12 homers and 51 RBIs and be hurt half the season. So I totally get that, but I'm in favor of bringing in anybody with a legitimate resume on the back of their baseball card. I'm willing to take a chance on this, especially at one year and $7 million. At the end of the day, I want the Red Sox competitive and interesting in 2023, and this helps them get there. They now have major league caliber players at every position, and that's something that we couldn't say a few weeks ago. The Duvall move is a good one, and it's a good one for a couple of different reasons. One, he's right-handed. And you needed to get some right-handed balance, and you needed to get some right-handed power, and now you've got it, or at least the potential for it. Xander Bogarts and J.D. Martinez, they are gone. You lost them as right-handed power bats. Trevor Story is out for most of the season. That hurts you as well. So you look at it now, you've got some you've got better right you've got some better balance in your lineup. Yoshida, Casas, Devers. Verdugo, Reese McGuire, they're all lefties. That's five lefties. Duvall, Kike, Arroyo, Turner, four righties. There's some balance there. You can play some matchups. You got some bench options now that can help you in some handedness matchups, etc. So I'm for Adam Duvall. He fits a need. Also, he's a good center fielder. The Red Sox had to do some stuff up the middle. And they had options, and they chose an option that you know, or they chose this option. Duvall's going to play center field, and he's probably going to play center field most days. And he's a good outfielder, won a Gold Glove again in 2021. So you solidified center field. That brings Kike Hernandez into the infield. I don't know if Kike Hernandez is going to play shortstop and Arroyo is going to play second. I don't know if they're going to sign a shortstop and put Kike at second. That's the jury is still out on that. But Kike Hernandez appears to be in the infield now. He's a good second baseman. I don't want him at shortstop, but he's a good second baseman. So second base defense, if Kike's there, is good. Center field defense with Arroyo is good. You've got some options. You've got some versatility. You've got some flexibility. And you fortified the outfield now with Duvall. So that is something that I am in favor of. And then finally, as I've been saying, this fits the plan. If the Red Sox come out, and are truly competitive, 
then that's great. That's what we want. We want the Red Sox to be battling it out for the playoffs. If they are truly competitive, then great. If they're not, Adam Duvall is another tradable asset. And I know you don't want to hear about that, but that is a reality of baseball. If you are not going to the playoffs, you are a seller. And the Red Sox have a lot of short-term pieces that they can sell to help themselves get better for the long term. Right? If they're good in 2021 or in 2023, awesome. That's goal number one. If they're not, Justin Turner can be dealt and McGuire can be dealt and Jansen can be dealt and Julia Rodriguez can be dealt and Martin can be dealt and Paxton, Paxton can be dealt and they could deal Verdugo if they needed to and Pavetta if they needed to and they could deal Duvall if they needed to and Kike. All these guys are on short deals at this point. I think they're all two years or less. Maybe Pavetta's got a little bit more. I'd probably hold on to him. But you can do a lot of things if you're the Red Sox, if it's not going your way. And that's how you should be looking at this. Hope to be competitive in 2023. Plan for it if you're not. Okay? Plan for it if you're not. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. I'd still like to see the Red Sox sign a starting pitcher. Who I don't want them to sign is Trevor Bauer. Right? That's who I don't want the Red Sox to sign Trevor Bauer. And I asked Tom Karen of Nesson about this yesterday, and he also is not in favor of this potential move. I'm against it. I mean, simple as that. I'm against it. This team has, again, I look at it. I'm not a baseball ops guy. I'm a TV guy, and this team has been just bludgeoned over the last six months. Do you really want to open that door and and set yourself up for a round of criticism again? I can see Dan Shaughnessy's first column is mm-hmm. going to be, you know, you let guys like Xander Bogarts leave and you bring in guys like this, and I mm-hmm. don't know that that's who you want to be. It's not who you want to be from a PR standpoint. I also just don't think it's the right thing to do and the right message to send. So... I don't want to bring in Trevor Bauer. Here's the deal, right? Bauer can be had for the league minimum. The Dodgers released him. They're going to pay their whole sal- his whole salary except for the team that signs him can get him for the league minimum. So he'd provide great value. He'd be highly motivated. He'd be better than a lot of the pitchers that you have. That said, I still don't want him. And I, and I don't like stories like this because they're very hard. They're very hard to think about. Bauer was given the longest suspension under the domestic violence policy in Major League Baseball history. Something happened. He wasn't found guilty in a court of law. We don't know what happened there. Bauer is said to have proof that makes him innocent. And some of it looks kind of convincing, right, from a, from a glancing read. So I don't know what happened. But that said, I don't want him. So... Maybe I'm judging him prematurely and he truly is innocent. Or maybe he's fully guilty of everything that she's accused him of. I don't know. I don't I don't want to take the chance. It's just not a guy that I want. Somebody else can sign him. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me if I'm the Boston Red Sox. Um, I'm not interested in that. So hard to believe we are... Maybe four weeks from pitchers and catchers reporting. I think the Red Sox first spring training game is February 23rd, February 25th, something in there. Pitchers and catchers usually report about around Valentine's Day. Uh, World Baseball Classic obviously is coming up. I think that begins March 8th. Red Sox are going to be out a number of players at the World Baseball Classic. I mean, they're going to be out. Uh, in no particular order of importance. Verdugo's going to be out. Devers, Kenley Jansen, Jaron Duran. That's four. Uh, Pavetta, that's five. Some, Kike, that's six. I started to see some of the preliminary rosters for the World Baseball Classic. It's a good tournament. right? It's a really good tournament. I mean... The Dominican Republic team is absolutely stacked. And I know you look at it and say, well, they could always be stacked. Yeah, they could, but they haven't been. They are loaded. I mean, the Dominican Republic team, Julio Rodriguez, Manny Machado, Jeremy Pena, Gary Sanchez, Starling Marte. Uh, I'm missing others who are – that Jose Ramirez, 
I mean, it's an absolutely loaded roster, and the pitching staff is insane. Sandy Alcantara, the the uh, Cy Young winner, Luis Castillo from the Mariners. I mean, the Dominican team, the U.S. team, and Team Japan appear to be the three best. They are the three betting favorites. Puerto Rico looks pretty good. Venezuela looks pretty good. This is, a good, this is going to be a fun tournament. And I know it takes guys out of spring training, and there's always the risk of injury. And I, I'm acutely aware of both of those things. But I'm looking forward to a, a little meaningful baseball coming up here not that long from now. Pitchers and catchers in four weeks. World Baseball Classic in about six weeks. I'm down with that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm ready for it. I love I love watching the World Baseball Classic. I just don't love the idea of players getting injured. Um, all right. High school basketball is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Brett Curtis is on the call. So um, it's going to be People's Academy and Randolph. Our coverage is going to start here in about six minutes. So a uh, reminder that on the podcast channel, there's a lot of extra stuff today, a lot of extra stuff today. I spoke with Jim Plumer, the UVM women's hockey coach. They've got their pack the gut challenge coming up on Friday. That is going to be where they're trying to literally pack the gut, right? Jim Plumer said that I want my team playing in front of thousands, not hundreds. Is a UVM women's team that's nationally ranked has been all year. It's in the top third of Hockey East in the standings. They're playing Holy Cross on Friday, a team I believe they've beaten twice already this year. Go out and support them if you can. I, I can't. I'll be here. But go out and support them if you can and if you can navigate the potential weather challenges. So get out there and uh, and support the Catamount women's team. They are – look, they're 16-8-1 they're this year. They're 11-6-1 in Hockey East. That's the best conference in the country. So – Really good stuff out of Jim Plumer's program and their growth. So good to see that. I also spoke with Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio. You can check out that full interview on the podcast channel. And then our interview is also available with Mike Rodak talking about uh, Bill O'Brien and his candidacy for uh, the Patriots offensive coordinator position. Tomorrow we'll be back at it. We'll talk with Buster Olney of ESPN. We'll talk more baseball. Again, it's spring training. It's hard to believe. Just four, four and a half weeks away. We're going to be talking about Fort Myers, and uh, I can't wait. I cannot wait for that. No Celtics game today. Bruins are on the ice here at 730. They're taking on the Islanders out there uh, in uh, in Nassau County, so at the uh, what they call it now, the UBS Arena, I think. not No longer the Nassau Coliseum, the new UBS Arena there uh, in Nassau County. So B's looking for another win. Celtics will take on the uh, Warriors tomorrow in a finals rematch. Celtics lost earlier in the year against Golden State. We're back at it tomorrow until 645. High School Hoops with Brent Curtis is next on DEV.